0: Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your discipleship in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We hope that you're having a very blessed day. You can catch the Bridge Builder program right here each week on your favorite Catholic radio station. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast. Again, mncatholic.org slash podcast, or find us on your favorite podcast app. Just ask for the Bridge Builder show. Each week on The Bridge Builder, we bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in public life. We also answer your questions in our mailbag segment. You can email those to us at show at or contact us on social media. And it wouldn't be The Bridge Builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you can start laying the bricks that build the bridge between faith and public life. We've got a great show today. We're talking about the election. It's drawing near and how can Catholics think about their responsibilities, their engagement and participation in the political process. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about policies impacting student aids for non-public school students. And then stick around for the bricklayer segment and learn how you can join with Catholics in Minnesota and around the world this month to help recognize and work for the needs of migrants and refugees. We're now joined on the line for our discussion today on civics voter engagement and Catholic participation in the election and public life by Dr. Stephen Millies. He is Associate Professor of Public Theology and Director of the Bernardin Center at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Welcome to The Bridge Builder Show, Dr. Millies.
1: Oh, thanks. It's great to join you.
0: What got you interested in studying the relationship between the church and public life?
1: I often say it's surprising to me that more people aren't as interested as I I am, or at least more people like me. I grew up in the Archdiocese of Chicago turning on the news every night, and uh, there was Pope John Paul talking about the great issues of the 1980s, and there was our local bishop, Cardinal Bernadine, talking about the great issues of the 1980s. And then we would go to Mass on Sunday and hear those two names uh, recited in the Eucharistic prayer. Uh, The the intersection of faith and public life never seemed very mysterious to me. It always seemed very natural. Like I say, I'm, I'm surprised more people aren't as obsessed as I am.
0: It's a fascinating subject, and certainly we at the Minnesota Catholic Converts make our living working at the intersection of religion and public life. But it seems that at the level of the person in the pew, the, the great resources and documents and teachings from the popes and the bishops, they just don't translate or haven't made their way down that far yet and haven't been really well absorbed. Why, you, why do you think that is?
1: Well, that's a complex problem. I think I would point to two things. The first thing I would say is we are a great church of intellectuals. We've really got a fantastic tradition of theology and philosophy and ethics, very well defined uh, and, and, and very tightly packaged in such a way that it all coheres, it all hangs together, it all makes sense. But the world's not a philosophy classroom. And I think sometimes we make the mistake of treating the world as though it's a philosophy classroom, and I think sometimes that's alienating for people in the pews. The other thing that I would say is that on some level i think we have to acknowledge that this is a failure of catechesis But in a very particular sense, it's not a failure to pass on information. That would be the first thing that I talked about, that there's something in the way we're trying to transmit it that I think doesn't quite connect with most people who don't spend their lives in universities and classrooms. Rather, I think it's really we've somehow failed to build the bridge to the lives that people are living in the world so that their worldly lives somehow, at least in my experience as a parishioner, sometimes seem more credible to them than what the church has to say, which is very easy for them to dismiss as seeming a little unrealistic or a little naive. So in an overall sense, I think we've really failed to connect with where people are. I think that's the challenge that sits before us as we now you know, look at diminishing church participation, church attendance, and wonder what the next step is going to be. I think we've got to focus our attention there, and it's a bigger question than the church in public life.
0: Well, certainly uh, in a show called The Bridge Builder, your answer uh, definitely resonates. And that's what we try to do here is translate some of these great concepts into practical things that people can do and and consider as they bring their discipleship into the public arena. But one thing uh, I want to expand on a little bit is this idea of how we do this and how can we do it better. How do we help Uh, Catholics understand the call to faithful citizenship, and you mentioned already connecting with the realities of their everyday life, but the the Church calls us to the participation in community, that participation in public life. People are kind of allergic to politics because it seems like a dirty business, but yet, as Pope Francis says, it's one of the highest forms of charity. So how do we make that reality and responsibility come alive uh, for people in the pew?
1: One of the things that I like to talk about when this comes up is We've spent, I wrote a book about um, the way in which the church's engagement with what have become culture war issues, uh, abortion, marriage, religious liberty. I wrote a book about how those have begun to drive Catholic voter behavior. And I think that that as an overall strategic choice uh, is, is where we have to begin, Because I think that's played a role in distancing what the church has to say about faithful citizenship from the lives of people uh, for whom, for the most part, those things are abstractions. I think we do well uh, when we remember what politics is in the way that Aristotle talked about it. Politics begins with household management, Uh, politics is about kitchen table issues, politics is about the anxieties that people have about their families and about their own futures, and it begins with a job and it begins with security, and it begins with health care, and it begins with education. And the Church has wonderful things to say about those things that are credible and that that can pursue effective public policy solutions that will really help people. And I think also, in the end, that's a way to build the credibility of the argument toward those more big-picture issues that I talked about at the beginning that are a couple of steps removed from most people's immediate experience.
0: You've been commenting recently uh, about voting patterns, speaking of uh, getting involved and, and thinking about these issues, particularly among young people. The U.S. has one of or perhaps the lowest youth voter participation rate in the world. Why do you think young people in the U.S. choose not to vote, and do you see a potential change in that this year?
1: Well, I think it would be important first to say that in an overall sense, the U.S. has one of the lowest voter participation rates in the world, uh, even if we don't break it out by age. But certainly I think what you say is true. It, it, no matter uh, what the movement in voter behavior, whether it's midterm elections or presidential elections, there's always a, a staggering step uh, from, uh, that we can go in age groups from millennials all the way up to silent, the, the silent generation in terms of voter participation. In part, I think there have been changes in our culture that have encouraged young people to disengage from institutions. This is part of what's happened, I think, in our churches as well. But we've had a growth of media culture and of consumer culture that has taken up a lot of the space in too many people's lives and certainly even more in young people's lives who aren't thinking as much about the kinds of kitchen table issues that I mentioned before. Things like entertainment, things like athletics, uh, all of the the, the things that we enjoy and, and fill our lives with also take up space in our consciousness and they prevent us somewhat from thinking about those institutions that are important for how we're going to engage the world and certainly that's the church certainly that's also politics uh, it indulges and in a lot of our entertainment is built on an easy cynicism about those institutions that i think a little too quickly become the butts of jokes young people are going to be the most susceptible to that because they're the most apt to be disengaged they've got the most leisure time and they they haven't yet made the commitments in life that are going to engage them with worrying about jobs education health care and so forth
0: We're talking about the election, Catholic participation in public life, and voter engagement with Dr. Stephen Millies. He is Associate Professor of Public Theology and Director of the Bernardin Center at Catholic Theological Union. Dr. Millies, so much energy and, and exasperation and social media time is spent worrying about the presidential election yet few are aware of the identity of their local candidates or the issues uh, that are really impactful at the state and local level. What do you think drives this dynamic, and what can the Church do to refocus people's attention?
1: Oh, well, uh, hmm. (sighs) You're going to stump me a little bit with that second part. Let me start with the first part and see how we end up. You know, I, I, I taught political science for 10 years, 15 years, excuse me, in the University of South Carolina system. And I can remember 10 years ago, 10 years before the 2016 election, predicting that one day this country would elect a reality TV star to be president of the United States. I, I never dreamed that it would happen that quickly but but i think what you're talking about and i think the reason that people focus so much on the presidential races without thinking about congressional to say nothing of state and local races the reason is because i think of the the celebrity mindset that pervades the way that we engage with culture and it's the reason too uh... why uh... electing a reality tv star uh... can seem like a natural sort of thing because politics becomes a sort of a variety of entertainment if you turn on CNN to watch coverage of a presidential debate or something like that, I I, I would encourage you to try to persuade me how the framing of that coverage, the graphics, the way that the talking heads talk about it, how is that coverage different from the way that they would cover a football game? To me, they look identical. uh, And I think that's a big part of the problem. We build up this celebrity idea, and then this becomes dominating to the degree that we can't see anything else. If the church can do anything... I think I would say this. If the church could do anything, it is to do precisely what pope francis has done this is one of the quieter things that he has done in his ministry and i wish more people would notice and talk about he's talked about the importance of politics as politics to really appreciate it as what it is as this uh, variety of civic and political love that we have to take seriously politics isn't about parties it's not about partisanship it's not about interests. The, the meaning of the word has to do with relationships it has to do with what we share in common Uh, If the people can hear the Church telling them, if the Church can devote itself to spreading that message, that our relationships in our communities, local communities, state communities, and then eventually the national community, that that's really the important thing, and that politics is a way of recognizing what we owe to one another, a duty of citizenship to really take this seriously. I think that's the most effective message, although I'll add I think in some ways I think that's what's really on the ballot in 2020. Do we want that sort of politics anymore at all?
0: We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Millies, Associate Professor of Public Theology and Director of the Bernard Center at Catholic Theological Union. What you're saying really resonates in terms of the political conventions and what those look like. If people have mortified themselves and sat through some of that, it's really a exercise in, in personalities more than it is principles and, and politics. So I think uh, you're right on in that point. One of the things that uh, you talk about is Pope Francis and the importance of politics as politics, his World Day of Peace message from 2019 goes into that uh, in great detail an absolutely fabulous meditation on the task of politics but it seems that the catholic social teaching principle of solidarity is is more important than ever and perhaps could be a bridge or a, a way in which we can transcend it's politics as usual it seems that both parties preach a sort of counterfeit solidarity that really masks a, a kind of libertinism underneath where do you what do you see uh, this the role of solidarity and the importance of solidarity and in rebuilding our political culture and our public life.
1: Let me say something about two archbishops of Chicago, if I can, speaking to you from here. I, I, the, the thing that I quote most often from Cardinal Francis George is an observation he had uh, while he was archbishop here that most Americans, even Catholics, are at bottom culturally Calvinist. Uh, that is that they, they believe really in a variety of individualism, and that individualism pervades the way that they even think about being believers, because it's so much in the water, it's in the atmosphere, it's all around us here in the United States, and that means it's totally bipartisan. But the second uh, archbishop I would mention is our current one, Blaise Supich, uh, who I think, um, actually, I guess I'll talk about three archbishops, because Cardinal Supich, shortly after he got here in Chicago, gave a talk where he, I thought, made a real contribution and an improvement to Cardinal Bernadine's consistent ethic of life, where Cardinal Supich proposed instead thinking of it as a consistent ethic of solidarity. And I think that clears up a lot of the confusion that there has been for now getting on to 40 years about the consistent ethic of life, which calls on us to see a whole picture uh, when we look at our public policy options and the range of options and choices that are in front of us in politics, Cardinal Bernadine wanted us to see the centrality and primacy of human life everywhere as the most important thing that we're called to reflect on when we think about politics, whether economic issues or, or, or moral issues or whatever. Uh, Cardinal Supich gave that a root in one of the seven principles of Catholic social teaching, solidarity, by encouraging us to think about our commitment to life as a commitment to solidarity as and and solidarity by the way is rooted in contract law. It's rooted in the idea of what we owe to one another. And so it comes back to that idea I was talking about before, that there is a duty of citizenship. There is an obligation, uh, which, by the way, also shares a root word with religion. Uh, It's what we're tied to. It's what we owe. It's a duty. Uh, And that's what solidarity is. It it, it wants to overcome that sense of individualism and invites us to see, as the gospel invites us to see, that we are inevitably connected to one another and we're better off when we recognize that.
0: Many Catholics have that innate sense that neither party is really fo- is, uh, offering us a vision of a consistent ethic of solidarity or a consistent ethic of life, and as a result, many Catholics feel politically homeless, and that also contributes to the disengagement. But uh, the reality is, um, unless uh, we want to just lament things, we we can light a candle or curse the darkness. So, do we also need to take perhaps a more realistic view of the political landscape, our two-party system, and say, well, this is what we have? and so So if we're going to make effective change, we still need to engage with it at a very practical level.
1: Yeah, I I think that's true. I I, I often say I hope Catholics always feel politically homeless. I I think that's a goal. And I say this, you know, based on a long meditation on St. Augustine. Our home is not here. That's what we believe. We are on a pilgrimage here, and, and we are here to take part in the world and to use the world and to work out our salvation. But we will not solve the problem of evil before the end of the world, before the final judgment. It's always going to be with us, and we are always going to be immersed in it. I think the most dangerous idea that we have is that there should be some sort of political choice that will leave us with clean hands. That will never happen. Uh, And if we start to think it's happening or hope for it to happen, we're, we're doing politics wrong. Politics is about choosing among options that are inevitably sinful because we are in an inevitably sinful world and trying to be the voice of justice, mercy, and peace wherever we possibly can within the bounds of what's possible.
0: I really appreciate that uh, very... uh prudent and thoughtful uh, reflection the possibilities and limitations of politics. I think that's a helpful corrective to some of the, uh, I- the ways in which idealism can also lead to disenchantment and then disengagement, a false idealism, perhaps. Let me ask you this, Dr. Millies. As the two parties become more secular and out of alignment with Catholic social teaching, and I think that applies in a bipartisan way, it seems more and more that whenever the church pronounces on something, and I can speak from very practical experience, it's it's really analyzed as to whether it helps Team Red or Team Blue. And it's not it's not considered as a matter of principle. as is this as we become more polarized as you know, we have the Speaker of the House talking about the other side as an enemy of the state. And we hear a very difficult and polarizing rhetoric on uh, from Republicans as well. Um, Is it better that the Church focus its energies more on nurturing that consistent ethic of solidarity and then fostering lay engagement as opposed to trying to act as an institutional actor in the public arena? Or am I setting up a false either-or polarity
1: there? No, I think the only thing I would want to say in response to that is yes. Um, (laughs) I I, I tend to look at it this way, And, and the Church came out of the Second Vatican Council, I think, wanting all of the right things and certainly that meant finding new ways to engage a modern world for the first time and i think we embarked on trying to be politically effective in ways that seemed like they would be a good idea and certainly wanting all the right things but ultimately, it, I think the evidence is in. It's It's been over 50 years now, and, and we really have been drawn into the polarization, and we have fueled the polarization. Uh, it, once you begin engaging in partisan activity, it's very hard not to be a partisan. And, and even if you're improbably successful and, and aren't a partisan, it's very easy to be perceived as one. So I think you're exactly right. I, I think... The most effective place to work out faithful citizenship is in the pew. It's in the neighborhood. It's in the parish. It's in the the donut hour after Mass on Sunday morning. At the end of the day, uh, as Pope Francis has reminded us, the Church is here to form consciences, not replace them. We've got to be in an ongoing conversation among ourselves about where it is that we can be the leaven in this world. And and it's very important, too. You know, I want to hit that last point one more time. It's very important, too, to really think about effectiveness. Where can we be most practically effective in public life today is the most important question. And the answer will change from day to day and from election to election. And it should. And that doesn't mean that we're flip-flopping, and it doesn't mean we're changing our minds. It means that we're being, the word you used, prudent. We're asking, what difference can we make to make the most improvement, to make the greatest contribution right now in these circumstances? Ineffectiveness in politics is the same thing as being wrong morally on the issues, because ineffectiveness means you've done nothing. You've contributed nothing. So effectiveness, to me as a student of politics, is at least as, if not more important, than being right on the issues.
0: I'm looking forward to the return of Donut Hour, if for the donuts, (laughs) uh, but also as an opportunity to uh, have more of these important conversations. So I'm glad you mentioned that. We can pray that Donut Hour returns uh, very soon. Uh, I
1: even look forward to the stale coffee. Yeah,
0: <laughs> our donut vendor, unfortunately, in my church, went out of business because his business was Sunday donuts, and that's a, a lamentable reality of where we're at. Dr. Millies, we got one time for one final question. And uh, speaking about effectiveness. A lot of people will say, well, I should vote third party, and they talk about various third parties because they feel politically homeless, but oftentimes these third parties might be right on the issues, but they're not necessarily even on the ballot. Is, is voting in a particular race for a third party a reasonable choice for Catholics or even not voting out of principle, or is that a wasted vote? I think people want to know the answer to that very practical question from your perspective.
1: Most times i would have to say i would discourage people from third-party voting but there's a very important caveat there third party candidates in american presidential history have on numerous occasions been signals that the two parties are in the wrong place the success of of ross perot the success of uh, teddy roosevelt Uh, we have had third-party movements in American political life that have been important contributions to where the two parties eventually would wind up to try to capture voters. But I have to say, those are the exceptions. Those are not the rule. And for the most part, I'd have to say, opting out for a third party to indulge one's own conscience at the expense of the community, really, where some good can be done where some other good can be achieved, is not a choice that I myself would defend. I think we are called to struggle in this world, and and anything that makes that struggle for us easier, and I'm talking about the the really final apocalyptic fundamental struggle for justice and mercy and peace to really be the salt of the earth and the light to the world, anything that makes that path easier for us is not the path of the gospel, it's not the way of the cross.
0: And on that note, we've got to end our very fascinating discussion today with Dr. Stephen Millies, Associate Professor of Public Theology and Director of the Bernard Center at Catholic Theological Union. Dr. Millies, you've really helped us dive into some important themes of conscience, prudence, and political participation and where the Church can help better form consciences. So thanks very much for joining us today, and God bless your work.
1: Well, I'm very grateful to be with you, but I can't close on the cross. We are in Easter, people, and your donut baker will rise again.
0: <laughs> Amen to that. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in today's mailbag? Yeah, so one of our Catholic Advocacy Network members had a question about one of our recent action alerts regarding transportation for Catholic school students. She says, hey, I'm a parent of a Catholic school student, and I've contacted my legislators on this issue But what else can I be doing? So it's important to note that the state of Minnesota makes a policy choice to provide certain forms of aid to all students, uh, irrespective of the choice they make regarding where they attend school. So you could be a public school student, a private school student, a homeschooled student, and the state is going to provide each student with certain forms of aid. One of those is transportation aid, but there are others like nursing services. Uh, counseling services, textbook aid, and and more. And so how those are administered typically is through the school, the parent signs a form that says they want these services, and then uh, the school, from a practical standpoint, the school administers those things. But sometimes, like in the transportation context, uh, we, as non-public school, in the non-public schools, piggyback off of those services. So oftentimes busing routes, non-public school students and Catholic school students will use those. Well, as we're encountering this, the challenges of uh, different patterns of opening and, and closures for schools between public and private during the COVID crisis. Uh, it's, if the public schools aren't running buses, well, they're in some cases saying, well, we're not rest- running buses for our schools, so we're not going to be running buses for your schools either, or we're running on a hybrid model and we're only operating two days a week, so we're only going to be operating buses two days a week, and that's only all we're required to do under law. Now, our firm position is, is that irrespective of the choices public schools make regarding whether they're open are closed on any particular day, the school students and the non-public schools have, are entitled to those services by statute. We think equal means equality with regard to school choice, not equality with regard to whatever the public school is doing on a particular day and so we've asked legislators the governor and the department of education to make sure that school districts are applying these aids fairly and equitably and so it's important that non-public school parents and people in the community who are concerned that schools that kids make it to school on time regardless if they attend a catholic school or public school that they can do so safely in many of our uh, Catholic schools and in our low-income neighborhoods where sometimes there are safety issues. um, It's not really practical with two parents working a job, with the streets not always being safe, for kids to not have those busing aids. And so from the standpoint of just pure safety and convenience, uh, non-public school students should have those aids and those resources. And it's important that public schools apply them. And in fact. It's in a public school's interest because the way the transportation formula funding works is that if they don't use the busing services, they don't provide busing for non-public school students, it's going to affect their busing formula and their busing dollars down the road. So there's no reason public schools and public school districts should not be providing transportation aid to to non-public school students. And uh, so we're advocating uh, strongly that they, in fact, do so and not hassle our non-public school students and community. Great. Thanks for kind of delving into that a little bit more, helping us to understand that issue. What do we have before we go in this week's Bricklayer segment that people can actually start taking action on, learn more about to bridge that gap between faith and politics? Well, since 2009, the Catholic Bishops of Minnesota have designated the Feast of Our Lord's Epiphany to mark Immigration Sunday, Minnesota. This year, Minnesota's bishops have moved this day to Sunday, September 27th, to join with Catholics around the world to mark World Day of Migrants and Refugees. This year's theme for World Day of Migrants and Refugees is Forced to Flee Like Christ. Immigration Sunday is an important moment for Minnesota Catholics to show their commitment to welcoming migrants and refugees in our community through prayer, education, and action by accompanying our immigrant brothers and sisters in our communities. We can not only help them integrate into our communities, but also show that we see and welcome Christ in them. In his annual message for World Day of Migrants and Refugees, Pope Francis places a great emphasis on the need for pastoral care for displaced people. In this letter, he writes, Displaced people offer us the opportunity to meet the Lord, even though our eyes find it hard to recognize him. His clothing in tatters, his feet dirty, his face disfigured, his body wounded, his tongue unable to speak our language. In his letter, Pope Francis emphasizes the relationship between six practical actions that we can take to better serve those who are displaced. We have to know in order to understand. It's necessary to be close to those we serve. In order to be reconciled, we need to listen. In order to grow, it is necessary to share. In order to promote and to protect, we need to be involved. And in order to build, we need to cooperate. So much of our immigration discussion is rooted, it seems, in identity and we have to recognize our fundamental identity as brothers and sisters and with a common humanity and members of the body of Christ or potential members of the body of Christ instead of defining ourselves specifically and primarily as citizens of one country with respect to citizens of another country. Our duties and rights really are defined by our primary identities and in terms of what we owe each other by our common humanity and our status and identity as Christians. Around the world, we know that many people are forced to flee their homes due to violence, hunger, poverty, and disease, but what does this look like in our own state? As we approach Immigration Sunday, in Minnesota, we encourage you to begin examining what it means in Minnesota and for those in your community to be displaced. Visit us at mncatholic.org Immigration Sunday for further resources that can be used at your parish. Again, that website is mncatholic.org Immigration Sunday. That's all the time we have for today. Listeners, you can be part of our mailbag segment. Just send any of your questions or comments to show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on social media. Then tune in next week to find out if we include your question or comment. Remember, you can catch up on any past episodes online at mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for The Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. I hope you enjoyed our very fascinating conversation with Dr. Stephen Millies. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and for our producer, Kit Cross, thanks for listening, and have a blessed day.